coming up in this episode. So we have an investment committee that is really a who's who of the global wine trade, as I mentioned. Um, we mm. have two professional wine investors and two masters of wine, uh, of which there's only 416 in existence. So there's more astronauts than masters of wine, just to give you an idea. They, they um, would make a great asset class themselves then. They would, yeah, very exclusive. Yeah, very, <laughs> very painful to fractionalize them, though, I think. But Yeah, um, maybe. Maybe. Uh, I mean, their nose is essentially going to be the, the thing that's worth the most. Right? <laughs> yeah. Investors are just the same as everyone else. If they're not going to see that, you know, you know, as well as anyone, that the number one, um, the, the, the main criteria for an investor is, is this the person to make this business move forward? Is this the yeah. person to go ahead and solve that problem? And so if that is, a, that, that to me is an incredibly big piece of the puzzle. Which is yeah. well, I mean, is this person going to be here in two years? Do they care enough about the about the problem to to keep going? Well, obviously, so champagne is a. Oh, oh excuse me. Bless you. Unfortunately, I didn't have time to mute. Sorry. No problem. No problem. We can edit that out after the fact. I'm sure. No, but, um... we'll keep it in. It's authentic. <laughs> <laughs> what I've seen, people come to wine investing one of two ways. They either start with a passion around the asset itself, so they are really into wine. Um, you know, they, they love the history of it. They love the sort of, you know, getting into the, uh, the, the kind of passion of collecting wine, uh, drinking wine, learning about wine. And then there is a, another demographic of people that first get into it as an investment. And I'm ashamed to say that I think my original interest in wine was really through that investor's lens. The Founders Unplugged podcast, hosted by Greg McCallum. Raw, unedited conversations with entrepreneurs and startup founders. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think you're right. I mean, um, with all of these things, you know, what it's what it has taught me. And we can talk about this during the pod, but um, this is the this is the pod we, we've started. We've already started. Oh, yeah, brilliant. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, oh, please don't mention don't mention the angel bit at the beginning. Okay, all right, I'll cut that out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's funny. Oh. Like I, <laughs> people don't realize this recording straight away, and so many times I get like, "Can you just cut out the bit at the beginning?" I'm like, "All right, fine." Like I've just yeah, got used sure. to it now that every time I, I do the edit, I'm just like, "Right, I'm probably gonna have to cut out the first ten minutes." All right. Yeah, okay. sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, in that case, let's start the actual pod. Okay, here. we'll start now. All right. Hello. How are you doing? Oh. You're all right. Yeah, I'm very well. <laughs> thank <Okay>. you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a shame because I thought we said some really good stuff there. But, I know. Well, I, it's I, the, the <laughs> issue is that earlier part of the conversation is it, at the moment too sensitive, I think, to be right. uh, okay, to be publicised. So I want fair to enough. keep uh, I want to keep everyone on side. Um, okay. <laughs> See, that's why I was playing devil's advocate in that bit as well to like just be like, oh fucking hell, if this is going out, you know. <laughs> but no, fair enough. Well, look, um, yeah, no, it's good to see you again, man. And um, and like you said, like the week's been been a busy one and hectic with all of the inbound and you closing the round and stuff. So, um, but look, before we get into that, what I typically like to do, which is I think I mentioned to you before, it's about the only bit of structure in this entire shit show of a show, is um, to, to have my guests uh, introduce themselves and, you know, tell them yeah, a bit about yourself and, and of course, the business. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you can you can go on. Like I've had some people go on for half an hour. You can go on for five minutes. It's, it's honestly entirely up to you. Um, and while you're doing that, I'll probably share my screen and, and show uh, your website and your LinkedIn and stuff. So so to take it away, uh, the mic's yours, so to speak. Yeah, sure. No problem. I can promise I won't speak about myself for half an hour. Um, but just for your, for your listeners' benefit, so I'm Callum Woodcock. Um, I'm the CEO and founder of Winify. Winify is a platform that aims to make it so easy and cost-effective to invest in wine that it will be feasible for wine to form a part of every investment portfolio for the first time. 
my background is in asset management. So I started my career at Fidelity uh, and then moved on to, to JP Morgan. Uh, I then did a master's at Cambridge before joining a B2B SaaS startup as employee number three and their commercial director. Um, I sort of helped take them from zero or from two rather to, to 60 customers. Uh, we got to cash flow positivity, sort of 92% quarter on quarter revenue growth. Um, and at the same time, my fiance's family are very big in the wine industry. So I've always been aware of fine wine as an asset class, you know, having this asset management background, it made me very nerdy uh, about sort of investments in general. And wine has this really fascinating profile, you know, over the last 30 years, it's outperformed most mainstream equity indices, especially on a regional level. But at the same time, it sort of possesses the stability of government bonds. So it's a very stable asset. It's also non-correlated. Um, so it, it, it isn't correlated really to traditional asset classes, which basically make it this very interesting investment. The downside is that investing in wine is incredibly expensive. Really, the only way to do it at the moment is to work with a traditional wine broker. You essentially send them 10 or 25 grand or whatever it might be and they come back to you with a list of wines. So there's this huge gap in knowledge. You don't really understand what you're getting for that money. And the pricing of the wines is very opaque. So you're never really sure if you're getting a good deal. Um, the fee structures are very opaque. So a lot of them charge annual fees, but they'll also take this kind of hidden markup on the value of the wines. And it's a really interesting market because it basically means that the only people that make money are often the wine brokers themselves. And you know that something is seriously mm. amiss when uh, you know you have these ultra high net worth individuals investing and they're still getting a bad deal themselves. So the basic idea with Winify is uh, we, have to, we have two product offerings. So we have a very transparent private client offering. So if you wanted to own the wines outright yourself, you can. But we also have um, what we're calling collections of wine. So these collections are held in an SPV. They are diversified around a theme or a region. So we might have a, a collection of Bordeaux First Growths, for example, that we've just released, um, a vertical of Screaming Eagle, which is a top wine of Napa. And the idea is that people can buy shares in these collections and gain exposure to the wine market at a fraction of the cost. Oh, there we go. Um, so yeah, so thank you for sharing the screen. So yeah, exactly that. So our first collection there, Bordeaux First Growths. The second one is um, a vertical of Screaming Eagle. And basically by buying shares in those collections, our investors will get exposure to the underlying assets at a percentage of the costs of owning uh, the individual bottles outright. Mm -hmm. So um, the basic idea is that we're going to make the wine market very accessible. Yeah, well, well th thank you for that a brilliant uh, introduction that, that wasn't uh, half an hour long. Um, <laughs> no, right, yeah, and, 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 and for, no, 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 not at all. That was no, 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 it was good. And look, and to be to be completely uh, transparent, I don't mind how how long people need to take to, to describe themselves. Some people, you know, um, absolutely need the extra time. So, um, but no, that was very concise. So I appreciate it. Um, but yeah, and for those listening, um, it's winefi.co.uk. I was showing the screen, mm. um, but it's wine as in wine and fi.co.uk. I'll put the the link to everything I just showed, including your your LinkedIn profile in the description. Um, so yeah, incredibly interesting area. Mm. I mean, um, and 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 so would it be fair to say you had you've had a burning interest for this before you got into it because of because of your, your fiance, sorry, did you say? Or, or, yeah, exactly. Your, yeah. So. so because of your fiance's uh, family and, and the, the interest there. So was it always an interest or is it something that only more recently decided to sort of bubble up to the surface? Yeah, it's really interesting you say this. And I think I'm probably going to offend a lot of wine connoisseurs um, right. in, in the process of answering this question. But from what I've seen, people come to wine investing one of two ways. They either start with a passion around the asset itself. So they are really into wine 
Um, you know, they they love the history of it. They love the sort of you know getting into the uh, the, the kind of passion of collecting wine, uh, drinking wine, learning about wine. And then there is a another demographic of people that first get into it as an investment. And I'm ashamed to say that I think my original interest in wine was really through that investor's lens. Mm. Um, but I think it was the fact that I was around people who were so knowledgeable about wine um, and were both collectors and just, you know, general kind of connoisseurs. Um, I ended up, you know, falling in love with it almost as a result of investing in it. Mm. And I suspect that's also going to be the case with many Winify users. You know, I... I I have a real sense from both our existing customers and the market research that we've done that people that approach wine as an investment often then want to learn more about the wines that they're investing in mm. and it becomes a hobby for them through that way. So I think it can work both ways. You can either approach it as a hobby from the get-go and then get into the investment side or you can do the reverse and come into it as an investment and then it ends up being a passion and a hobby. So I think it's a really interesting asset class in that respect. Yeah, um, yeah, totally. Mm. And so I mean, you get Sorry, but that's ahead. that's but that's that's a that's a pretty normal I think a, a, you know nothing to be ashamed about I think it's pretty uh, pretty normal especially as an investor you, you you're mm. looking to diversify your portfolio as it were and um, as a result you're going to start you know researching and, and learning about new asset classes and this is just one of them I think but it just so happens that I think this one is particularly interesting to a lot of people when you sort of delve into it because it's so rich because it's steeped in history and culture mm. and you know all that sort of thing um, the only thing I would say that I, I think is a little bit disappointing. About this particular asset class is that you can learn a lot about a particular wine and you can invest in it, but you can't drink the fucking thing. So isn't that a bit of a isn't that a bit of kick of a kick in the teeth? Like that you can be learning all about this wine and ultimately you can't actually taste it. You're completely you're completely right, and that's I think a major downside of our model is that the wines are stored in bond, um, right. so they're stored in a uh, a third party bonded warehouse, which means no VAT or duty is payable. But right. you're right because they're shared between multiple investors. It means that they can't drink the wines. Um, we are organizing a load of community events. So for investors in the existing collections, you know, we'll all get together in a uh, in a wine bar somewhere um, and be able to drink, you know, high end wine and learn about it a little bit. We're very keen to keep that element. Uh, but you're right, you can't sort of get high on your own supply, so to speak. <laughs> Which is it's probably a good thing, because I know <laughs> I, I, I would probably uh, drink through my investment otherwise. Even though I don't drink, I'd probably want to be tempted to anyway now. Yeah, um, well, I think it's a, yeah, I think it's, I think it's important as well to, to, to have a clear line in the sand between collecting and investing. Right, so right. When you're collecting, you know, you are collecting for pleasure. So you're collecting to drink or to mm. gift it to friends, whatever it might be. But when you're investing, I think it's really important to basically be focused on the financial returns that you are anticipating mm. from buying an asset. Um, and this is something that I think is so broken about the existing wine investment offerings on the market. And one of the incentives for starting Winify um, is I think there's a lot of conflating between investing and collecting. You know, when I was first building my own wine portfolio, a lot of people were like, you know, a lot of the, the investment companies I, I spoke to were like, um, oh, you know, what do you like to drink? It's completely the wrong question. You know, mm. my interest in wine shouldn't come into it if you are approaching someone specifically for an investment because mm. you're looking for financial returns. You know, if I, my favorite wine is uh, like a Riesling, um, there aren't really any investment grade Rieslings. So it's a completely mm. pointless question. And my advice for anyone that's getting into wine investing and is asked that question, you know, run for the hills because yeah, what they're basically yeah. saying is, oh, even if you're, wines don't appreciate in value you can always take them out of bond and drink them take them out of the warehouse and drink them 
and mm. that's almost a a get out of jail free card i think from from various different wine brokers well it just makes absolutely zero financial sense as a, yeah, well, as a, as a mean, way of justifying a failing investment like you know that, it's like saying yeah. you can invest in sugar um but first of all which sugar product do you like and if it doesn't work well at least you can eat it like it's like it's like it's what like are we going to do with 20 to... tons of sugar <laughs> exactly but it's like going to a financial advisor and saying oh you know i've got 100k to invest or whatever and mm. then saying oh yeah you know what companies do you like it's completely the wrong question you know you wouldn't yeah. want someone to basically base your investment portfolio on you know oh well you know weatherspoons is somewhere i spend a lot of time so i'd love to mm. invest in weatherspoons but actually i think weatherspoons is probably quite a good investment but um you know, it's that it's that same sort of thing with the wine broker. And I think because wine is a passion asset in the same way that mm. art or classic cars or whiskey is a passion asset, mm. um, there is the opportunity for for sort of I don't want to say bad actors because I don't think I don't think that is the intention, but I think mm. there's the opportunity for people to kind of blur the line between okay, you're doing yeah. this hobby versus you're doing this anticipating an actual financial gain. Yeah, um, and, and there very likely are investors as well that are happy with that line being learned because it is a, is, a, is a hobby as well as a uh, as a potential investor because i excuse me i know um uh, quite a few people who would, who've invested in wine but actually yeah. now now discussing it with you um i think i've realized that that they're more collectors of wine and you know their justification for having such a large collection is well it's an investment um yes. right and, and and at the end of the day it's sitting in their basement and you know and it's you know uh, at risk for being yes. in their house and all this so it's not really a very secure investment and and they do bit by bit um open them on the odd occasion as well so again yes. it's, it, it's a collection really and and I'm, I'm sort of realizing that for the first time yes. um when you explain that so yeah i mean it's interesting because presumably there are similar not to go off too off track with what, what yeah what, sure you know, your, your product is but i mean you know presumably there is very similar adjacent um uh investment classes along uh, asset classes alongside wine, you know, you've got uh, champagne, you've got whiskey, you've got, you know, a lot of other very similar things in, in the sort of the world of alcohol specifically yeah. that, that, could, that could run adjacent to this. Is this something that you you feel, I, I know I'm kind of getting a bit ahead of myself because I no, want to no, go, go a bit further back in a minute as well, but like, you know, sure. do you think that's something that eventually WineFi might might sort of branch out to to, to looking into or, or are yeah. you tied in because you bought the domain that you're kind of a bit screwed, you're going to have to stick some wine? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, obviously, so champagne is a... Oh, oh excuse me. Bless you. <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't have time to mute, sorry. No problem. <laughs> No problem. We can edit that out after the fact, I'm sure. No, but, um, we'll keep it in. It's authentic. <laughs> <laughs> champagne, I think, is particularly interesting because there are so few top champagnes. Now, when you're investing in wine, you always need to think about the resale value. So who's going to buy that wine from you? And when you think about, you know, top investment grade champagne like Krug and Salon or Bollinger, you don't go if you're a, a champagne drinker, you don't go from drinking Bollinger to drinking Prosecco or Carver or a lesser champagne. So there's no real substitute, which means that typically they retain their value very well or the value increases. Now, we're seeing people take profit at the moment. So the market is a little bit um, a little bit soft, but it's it, the, you know, the key the key point still stands that you know, champagne, because there are so few top champagnes, it is typically a, a very resilient investment. Whiskey is very interesting. So whiskey, um, as you may have seen, has has shot the lights out over the last few years in terms of returns. I think it's mm -hmm. actually the highest performing luxury asset according to the Knight Frank Luxury Index. Um, it's an interesting one as well because wine, there is almost daily, well, there is daily pricing data because wine is traded all the time, whereas the whiskey market is much smaller. Um, so prices are much more opaque. 
So the they can jump, I think, far more significantly and far quicker than anyone really anticipates. Mm. We have seen just a word of a warning to your to to your viewers, a proliferation of cask investment businesses. So these whiskey businesses that are promising, um, you know, enormous returns from buying a a share in a cask. Um, I always caution against that because when you're investing in a single cask of whiskey it's like investing in the stock market but only buying a fraction of a single stock you get no diversification at all and as a result you know you're you're putting yourself at risk um it's also i mean wine isn't regulated either but whiskey isn't regulated so it does attract you know people looking to make a quick buck by jumping on the latest trend um mm. and part of the reason why our collections are diversified you know even if you're investing you know a couple of thousand pounds in a collection of our wine, you will get some diversity built in because they're, it's comprised of multiple different wines within this collection. So I think that's a key point to say. Um, Whiskey is also an interesting one because in the UK at least, wine is largely tax-free because it's designed as in capital gains tax-free uh, because it's deemed to be a, um, a wasting asset, so a, a chattel, a wasting chattel uh, by the UK government. But that basically only applies to um, items so wines with a, a useful life of under 50 years and fortified wine like port and then spirits like whiskey can obviously last a lot longer than that so a lot of investors invest in whiskey or, or in fortified wines or other spirits thinking that they're also going to be tax-free and actually I, I i don't know to what extent hmrc would come after someone who hadn't declared their whiskey gains um but whiskey can obviously have a a useful life much longer than 50 years so I think that's something to be to be aware of. Um, mm. And then you have you know a myriad of other interesting collectible asset classes like classic cars, jewelry, watches. Mm. Um, so potentially potentially all in scope for a future expansion. Maybe we'll see like a watchify. Um, <laughs> uh, but at the moment, very focused on wine, um, yeah, just because yeah. I think of all of them, it's the most. It has the most interesting characteristics, and it also has the 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 readiest supply of data relating to mm. it. So mm. it's. Um, it allows us and our investors to make informed decisions based on uh, up-to-date price data. Right, right. It's the most. Um, it's the most already established uh, sort of uh, asset class within this group of asset classes, by the sounds of it. Right. I think so, and, and it's also because um, you know when when wines are bottled, you know they, there's there's a certain, there's a finite number of of wines per vintage per producer. Um, so let's take Salon in, in Champagne as an example. So they only produce a thousand cases a year. That's still a lot more than, um, you know, an Andy Warhol painting, which will be a one of one. Um, so as a result, because these these wines are being traded, you know, these wines, you have a kind of aggregated price data across all mm. of the wines in the vintage. So it's easier to get a, a handle on what something is actually worth. And us as an investment organization, ultimately, um, that gives us a, a, a lot of comfort that we can then pass on to our users because we can say look this is what um the trade bids price is for this particular wine at any one time so you've got a pretty good handle on what your collection is worth or what an individual wine within that collection is worth which i think is is really important um mm. Mm. yeah super interesting so <clears throat> i said i wanted to sort of go a bit bit further back now as i, yeah. as I was jumping ahead a little bit there just because I, I was being curious but that's basically what this entire thing is about me being a bit <laughs> bit curious um no so um yeah let's let's go a bit back then uh <clears throat> tell me a bit about um about the journey from conception to to where you are now obviously you, you made uh you, you you mentioned at the beginning of this that um maybe in the bit that we edited out i don't know uh, that um 
uh, we'll, we'll, I'll have to find that in the edit. But um, uh, that, that you know, you've had a very busy week that you're getting a huge amount of inbound attention. Mm. Um, so, yeah. what was the steps leading up to that? You know, you let, take me back to when you sat down and first had this idea. What were those first steps that you took uh, to get to where you are right now? You know, on the precipice of launching, just about to mm. close close your investment rounds. Uh, guide me through that. Yeah, so I basically at JP Morgan um, had witnessed this this trend towards democratizing assets. So we've seen it done in property, we've seen it done in art, we've seen it done at various other asset classes. There's even a platform yeah. in the UK that allows you to own a percentage of a racehorse, which is uh, really? <laughs> yeah, quite an interesting concept, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we hadn't really seen it done effectively in wine, um, and I think the reason the reason being is one it's very complex from a regulatory point of view so you do have to work with lawyers we spend a lot of time and money with lawyers to come up with a regulatory structure that allows people to to invest in wine collectively mm. but the platforms that do exist that allow you to invest in wine really um or, or are trying to make investing in wine accessible either allow you to self-direct so you as the individual are choosing the wines individually that you want to invest in now the issue with that is that wine is a specialist subject if you're not already a specialist and you don't have access to you know detailed analytics and pricing data chances are you're going to choose you know wines that are unlikely to appreciate in value yeah and, yeah and secondly there's there's a number of platforms that allow you to invest in wine from you know a nominally small amount so i think um one of the smallest that i've seen uh in the us um is about a thousand dollars but the issue is there aren't really any investment grade wines that you could buy for a thousand dollars at least not if you wanted to build a diversified portfolio so what happens is that you end up with a portfolio packed full of non-investment grade wines that are unlikely to appreciate in value um so i'd kind of i, I suppose I'd, I'd i'd identified this as a problem as have many people you know i think the response that we received when we launched is is evidence of that but i hadn't really taken any steps uh, for a few years. So I was still at JP Morgan. I left um, to do my master's. I was working to scale up at the time. I started in investing in wine as an individual. So building my own wine portfolio. And then with all of these things, started building portfolios for friends who were interested um, and right. colleagues. Um, and it was only really having, you know, got this really early stage startup experience um, that I thought, you know what, I'm in a position now to make this happen. So I started looking, uh, this is probably October last year, so so 12 months ago, right. into the models that would allow this to happen. Um, and finally came up with a structure that works um, and decided to to put it into, into action. So I've been sitting on it for a number of years, um, you know, nearly five years, I think. Uh, and it just strikes me as the best possible time to be launching because I think we're just witnessing this global demand for private assets um, in a way that we've never seen before. You know, McKinsey expect retail allocations to alternative assets to double from where they are now by 2028. Really? Yeah, yeah, and it's and I think it's um, you know, we're in this interesting inflationary environment. And I think there's just a recognition that, you know, people want alternatives to the stock market or the bond markets. Mm. Um, and if you're a, a, a private investor, a retail investor, you don't really have that many alternatives. Um, you know, you can invest in crypto, I suppose, but there's uh NFTs. NFTs, exactly. Um, Great investment. This kind of democratization of real world assets, I think, is going to be a really important trend. Um, mm -hmm. And as much as we're taking the, the piss out of NFTs, et cetera, I do think that tokenization and, you know, Web3 innovations that allow fractions of assets to be readily traded mm -hmm. are going to revolutionize this space 
You know, oh yeah, know. yeah, absolutely. Just not pictures of uh, of monkeys. Um, no, but, no but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we've not we've not seen a particularly good application of that. Sure. No, I, I completely but, uh, agree. But, but but when you think when you think about the potential of it, and this is definitely something that we'll be leaning into at Winify, it mm. is it, it is really compelling because mm. you know, the issue with wine and art and classic cars and jewelry and any other kind of collectible asset, um, and this is especially ironic in the case of wine, but they are actually very illiquid. Um, you know, they 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 aren't easily traded. You know, if you mm. have half a million pound portfolio of wine that you suddenly want to get rid of, you could dump it over the course of maybe 30 days, but you're going to really pay a discount to market or suffer the consequences of, of selling so much wine because you're going to have to price it unbelievably attractively for people to snap it up. Mm. Um, so instead, what we see people doing is selling over a period of six months, let's say, so they can get the prices that they want for the assets that they're selling. Now, imagine if instead of doing that, you could sell a share in a collection of wine that could be traded on secondary markets. So I could own you know, 10% of a portfolio of Bordeaux first growths, I can sell that share onto someone, you know, a complete stranger. The person that sold me that share gets a royalty payment because that's the way that the tokens have been set up. And then when the collection is ultimately sold, so the Bordeaux first growths are sold, my token can burn and the funds, you know, the profits can be deposited in my account. So whoever's holding mm. the token at the time receives the profits. Suddenly that makes, you know, we, we are headed and I'm certain that this is going to be a trend. I thought it was going to happen in 2023, but it looks like um, uh, it, it, it probably is a, a year or two away. You know, we're heading towards the stock market of everything mm. where anything that can be divided up into fractions and traded will be divided up in fractions. Yeah. yeah. Traded. Um, and I think that's a, a, a really interesting trend and we're going to be in a perfect position to take advantage of that. Um, yeah. Yeah, that sounds, and it sounds like you've given that a considerable amount of thought. So I'm assuming that this is something that you have uh, potentially on the the theoretical roadmap, or maybe even the very literal roadmap for the for, yeah for the, for the for the business. Yeah, I mean, it was actually sort of version one of this idea when I was looking at how you could how we could make um, wine more attractive was around tokenization. I mm. think there is an issue with one user familiarity with Web three. You know, the idea mm. that you have yeah. to create a wallet and this stuff is traded on a blockchain yeah, um, yeah. I, I think puts, would put a lot of people off and i also think that um i don't know if you're you're into web3 at all but um i also think that where we are in the investment cycle so we're in a, a web3 bull market at the moment the news is very negative we had yes. the collapse of ftx at the end of last year um i i think an association of a business with web3 would probably be quite damaging so Agreed. what we want to do is yeah. prove the model by setting it up in a, a traditional familiar structure so shares and SPVs um, and and allowing users to engage that way before we got into anything more uh, more fruity, I suppose. And yeah, I and, and not to mention yeah. that just the, the the infrastructure of building something like that would take considerably more capital and time than than what you're doing, right? And so your yeah. launch would be, you know, uh, what, you know, maybe in a whole other year or two away compared yeah. to, to to right now. So just practically speaking, in terms of being able to launch, I suppose it's, it's making things a lot a lot more straightforward for you, right? Yeah, totally. And I also think there's, you know, an adage that's bounded around a lot in the Web3 space, which is the only way that we'll know that Web3 has truly, truly arrived is when we're using a, you know, quote unquote, Web3 technology without knowing that we are. So right. you know, something right. is powered by a blockchain under the surface or we're, we're, we're trading a token without overtly going, oh, yeah, this is a, you know, a Web3 technology. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. you know, I think there's a lot to do in terms of user onboarding and user interfaces and adoption and simplicity critically mm -hmm. um, before we before we reach that that point and regulation 
Like, because I mean, yeah. let's face it, the, the, the large reason, the main reason why there's been uh, the, 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 the poor image uh, that there is of Web3 and blockchain and NFTs yeah. and all this nonsense is because of there's been huge amounts of scams, you know, taking place because it's completely unregulated. And yeah. so it's, it's allowed for that to happen. So until regulation comes in, um, that's not, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. And unfortunately for Web3, AI has come into the equation, which has taken the focus away from that. Um, which is fortunate or unfortunate for that that uh, that that, air, that industry, depending on how you look at it. But from my perspective, unfortunate because it now means governments around the world and and financial institutions around the world are far more focused on the on the pro the issues at hand with AI and not so much with that. So it's going to be a couple more years, unfortunately. I think of of unregulated mess uh, before mm. the focus then comes back to that, and it's probably going to take another FTX for that to happen unfortunately and so a yeah. lot of other people getting uh, screwed out of their money for, for until something happens and it's probably going to be you know just the wrong person gets screwed do you know what i mean yeah. like some someone in power someone with with sway is going to be the one that get you know get screwed of a couple of million and that's when we'll see something happen probably yeah <laughs> you know but um but look just to, just I, I got a question for you which might seem like a bit of a simple one um, maybe to you but but i think for for me and a lot of other people listening or watching it's probably quite an important one what makes a, um an invest uh, an investment grade wine like you mentioned about the different um regions and the, the, there's only a handful of yeah. regions around the world that produce investment grade wine but what makes investment grade wine yeah uh, that's a, a really good a really good question um so first of all i would say uh, perceived wisdom is that one percent to maybe three percent of all wine produced is considered investment grade at the most basic level investment grade wine number one is expected to appreciate in value of course that doesn't always happen but it's expected to mm. um and for that to happen you know for it to appreciate in value you also need to have a buyer at the other end someone that is willing to buy that wine from you so naturally, that means that there has to be a secondary market for those wines. Right. And that's why South African wine, for example, um, isn't investment grade. There isn't a secondary market for South African wine. There just isn't that demand. Um, so I think that's the first thing. And at its most basic, that's how I would classify an investment grade wine. Um, but there are a number of other factors as well. So the first thing that you're looking at is ageability. So does the wine get better with age? Because that incentivizes um, you know, people to keep it cellared, so to speak. So mm. keep it in bond. Uh, for a number of for a number of years until it approaches its drinking window or, or reaches its drinking window. And then, of course, wines typically get better with age. So I was putting together a, a portfolio on the advice of our investment committee yesterday for a for a client. Um, and one of the wines that we that we put in their portfolio entered its drinking window in 2020. So it's right at the beginning of it and it will keep improving in quality until 2040 because tannins break down, you know. Um, mm. it, become, it becomes better to drink, more drinkable. So I think that's an important thing because the, the idea then is that it gets better with age. People are drinking the wines uh, you know, as it's aging. So there's an ever diminishing yeah. supply. And because the wine is getting better with age, then there's never increasing demand. The price goes up because there's fewer of them available. You know, in economics, that's called right. a Veblen, a Veblen good. Um, right. Now, the, the, the other thing that really makes an investment grade wine, um, so quality alone, sadly, isn't, isn't a factor. It's all about uh, brand equity. So right. how recognizable is the brand name? Um, how are critics scoring the wine? So, um, you know, Robert Parker, for example, um, who ran a publication called Wine Spectator, um, is this world famous wine critic whose uh, critic scores that he would give a wine, so it's on a 100 point scale, um, would radically influence the, the price of the wine. 
Um, and there are a number of other really prominent critics as well. So Jesus Robinson is one, uh, James Suckling. Um, you have magazines like Decanter who are all scoring these wines and all of them have an impact on the price. But depending on how well regarded or otherwise the critic is, the way that they score the wine will have a, a different price. And one of the factors that we actually look in uh, into at Winify is when rescores are scheduled. So when is a critic going to rescore a wine? Um, because that right. can move the market um, to a huge degree. And just to give you an idea of how um, how powerful that can be, uh, so um, Robert Parker, as I mentioned, so this wine critic, was responsible for a phenomenon called Parkerization. Um, I don't know if you've heard about this, but basically no. he, he really liked Bordeaux reds. So he really liked a certain type of, you know, really jammy, full-bodied Bordeaux, uh, Bordeaux reds. And what happened is wine producers noticed this trend. So the, the wines that he was giving his highest scores to had certain things in common. So they, they you know, because essentially you're, it's one man's palate, right? It's what mm -hmm. he enjoys. Um, so they basically started changing their entire productive production process. So a number of Bordeaux producers did this and producers across the world um, to, to basically suit his palate. So they would change the actual wines to to try and appeal to specifically to this one man. So it goes to show mm. how um, how much of an impact critic scores can have. Um, wow. So brand equity and, and the way that critics approach it is really important. But then I think a final one is just around that supply and demand dynamic. So, mm. you know, mm. Constellation Wines in the US, which is this, you know, conglomerate of wine producers, between them produce, between all the, all the brands kind of under their umbrella, I think it's something like 52 million cases of wine a year. And in contrast, Chateau Aubryon in Bordeaux, so one of the Bordeaux first growths, produces 12,000 cases a year. So you have this much higher perceived quality and at the same time, a much lower supply. And as I've said already, that supply then decreases over time. So if there's a top vintage, like a 2005 vintage, um, those wines are bought, they are drunk or improperly stored or broken, which destroys their resale value. Um, so you have a an ever-growing demand as, as global wealth increases, competing for an ever smaller supply of wines, of, of these assets. So I think all of those things mm. come together to, to produce true investment-grade wines. Um, mm. But yeah, it's almost one of those things where none of those factors individually make an investment-grade wine because you can have great mm. wines that will age, improve with age over time, but that wouldn't be classified as investment-grade. And at the same time, you could have wines that get phenomenal critic scores, but are unlikely to be classified as investment grade because they haven't got that secondary market resale value. So right. it's quite I a new There's quite a few boxes that need to be ticked then in order for it to, to fit. So so yeah. do you do you uh, because of those those um those requirements, I guess, then mm. does that mean it's it's almost impossible for another vineyard, for another region to be able to, to, to get themselves into that area? Because I mean, I'm assuming that this this landscape hasn't changed much over the last, you know, couple hundred years that, mm. that we're talking about, uh, you know, that some of the areas you listed off earlier are, you know, have been around for a very significant amount of time. And, and, and you know, we've got the Australian market, like you said, who you know, yeah. like to believe that they're creating investment grade wine, but not quite there. I mean, they've been at it for a while now. You know, is someone going to give them a break? You know, is there really any <laughs> opportunity for this to grow? Or is this always going to be very much tied and steeped in tradition and, and heritage? Yeah. Um, because that is that not going to potentially create a pretty stagnant market in years to come? Well, I mean, I think, you know, you've hit the nail on the head there to some degree. It is really difficult to break into this sort of lucrative world of being regarded as investment grade. Mm. Um, 
you know, and when you look at investment grade regions, you know, the majority of them are old world with one exception, which is Napa Valley in the US. Right. Um, I think they are probably the best examples in the Napa, the Napa wines um, of a region, if you like, that has broken into the investment grade wine world. Mm. Um, but interestingly, the reason they do they, 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 the, that came about. So they're producing phenomenal wines and, um, you know, this but this is the story across the world. You, know, you can get some incredible Chilean wines, incredible South African wines, incredible Australian mm. wines, but they're not considered investment grade. And it was the same in, in Napa in the U.S., um, until the 1970s, um, where a, a very prominent wine merchant organized something called the Judgment of Paris, which basically um, pitted French Cabernet Sauvignons against um, American Cabernet Sauvignons in, in blind taste, tastings. Right. And something really interesting happened, and you, you could probably guess where I'm going with this. A lot of French people were crying, I imagine. Yeah, uh, well, completely. I mean, um, <laughs> you know, there was a, uh, when, when labels were left on the bottles, Mm. Uh, the French wines overwhelmingly beat the American ones. But in blind tastings, which are obviously what matter, uh, American ones wiped the floor with these French wines. So um, they almost by default became these very popular investment grade wines. And of course, the American wine market is the largest in the world. And mm. the fact that they appeal to kind of American wine investors, I think, has, has been a major reason why, they, why they've broken in. But you're mm. completely right. So, so um, one really interesting example um, on the extreme end is Chilean wine. So Chilean wine is is phenomenal. Um, mm. There are some incredible wine producers. You know the one the the one that you always see in supermarkets is Casellero uh, del Diablo. Um, but there are you know a, a, a legion of other excellent wines. But they really struggle to be priced above ten pounds a bottle. Mm. Um, and it's nothing to do with the quality. It's all to do with the brand perception. And, you know, if you're a, a wine consumer, your perception around Chilean wine is that it's less than French wine or it's less than Italian wine. You know, you don't regard it as being the same, you know, quality. So if you're going to spend 15 to 30 pounds a bottle, let's say if you're, you know, you're buying to drink, so you're buying table wine, um, you know, you wouldn't be spending 30 pounds a bottle on Chilean wine. You just wouldn't do it. Um, mm. Uh, you know, you probably wouldn't even spend twelve pounds. So it's it's really difficult, and this is something that the Chilean wine industry has been fighting for a really long time. But it's about changing this almost like cultural perception around mm. how wines, you know, the quality of wine, and so much of it is about branding. Um, yeah. And you know, one of, one of the so so Bordeaux first growths, uh, which are I've mentioned a couple of times, but just for your for, your, for the record, top five wines uh, wine producers from Bordeaux. Um, so Chateau Lafitte, Chateau Aubryon, Chateau Margaux. Um, Chateau Mouton and Chateau Latour in in Bordeaux. Um, four of those five were, were classified in 1855 as Premier Cru, so first growths. But Mouton, uh, which was a, a second growth, so still a really good distinction, but not quite regarded as the the top wine, um, had to lobby for decades. And this is the Rothschild family lobbying. So you know they've got some serious <laughs> capital behind them in order to move from being a um, a second growth to a first growth. So it can take a very, very long time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I would be excited to see more Australian, South African, Chilean wines regarded as investment grade. Um, mm. But I think we're still, you know, we're still quite a, quite a while off that.
And, it, and, and I suppose it goes back to what you're saying about well, there's so many factors here. You, you mentioned it's predominantly about branding, but what creates a brand are all these other factors. So not just the demand, but um, but in order to get that demand, I, I assume that well, reviewers need to, like you said, these prestigious reviewers need to, yeah. to make some pretty bold reviews around these sort of wines and as well as all of the other moving parts kind of aligning. Uh, you know, the stars need to align, so to speak, I suppose, for, yeah. for one, one of these brands out of Chile or, or Argentina or whatever for, for that to happen. So it's um, it's interesting. But um, and it does sound like there's, you know, a, a cultural thing there as well, to a degree. Like, you know, you mentioned the Rothschilds throwing a lot of money of lobbying for that wine. I mean, it's not like I'd imagine there are many families based in Chile that can afford to do something like that, nor is there probably even the infrastructure for them to go about that <laughs> a lot of the time, well, right? Exactly. And, and it's yeah. it's one of those, I don't know if chicken and egg situations is the right phrase, but, mm. you know, so I mentioned already when it comes to investment grade wine, the, you know, a limited supply clearly is a factor that's going to influence price. Yeah. But if you're producing a limited supply of wine because your acreage, et cetera, is, is small, um, you know, let's use, um, let's use Salon Champagne as an example, because I've, I've spoken about them already. So thousand cases a year, because that's all they, that mm. they can produce. You know, if you're, if you're producing those kind of volumes and you're not, an established name already you know how do you get the capital behind you needed to to create these these really prestigious wines you know how do you get the capital behind you to to market these wines in a way that's going to make you investment grade um you know in contrast chateau lafitte which again produces a, a, a relatively small number of wines but is the top bordeaux first growth um you know the estate in France, as small as it is comparatively, is valued at 3.2 billion euros. Mm. So something like two or three times more than the next most expensive wine estate um, in Bordeaux because of that brand equity and because it has these, you know, it was it was it was written about by Thomas Jefferson, right. uh, you know, in the in the 1700s. You know, it has this this kind of intrinsic um, brand equity and association with luxury. Um, mm. And if you don't, if you haven't inherited that. It is very difficult to build it from a standing start because mm. inevitably you you are producing um you know a smaller quantity of wines. Yeah. One yeah. one slightly interesting trend that I've noticed. And sorry, this is probably boring your your uh, your listeners to death. Not a, no, not at all. This is the whole point. So, <laughs> it's <laughs> educational. Yeah. Don't don't bring a wine nerd onto a podcast. That's why. <laughs> um, but but one interesting trend is so uh, Chateau Cheval Blanc, um, obviously you know a French a famous French chateau has um created a kind of a um oh, i don't know what you'd call it i suppose a sister chateau um called i think it's chateau cheval blanc des andes so of right. the andes uh in latin america which is kind of producing same sort of wines you know produced by the same kind of winemakers so it'll be interesting to see whether that brand equity can transfer to a different region or mm. whether like petit mouton for example it's going to be regarded as um this kind of lower quality wine that is sold or well not lower quality but you know not an investment grade wine that's sort of sold in supermarkets for for drinking with dinner you know table wine as opposed to mm. wine that you're going to be putting in a cellar and expecting to appreciate in value but it's interesting isn't it i mean just like a lot of asset classes there's, there's a lot of subjectivity in, in all of this isn't there i mean like you, you mentioned obviously about uh, and we talked about the historic importance of some of these regions and, and you know the, the sort of old world wines where you know because they're referenced in historic uh you know records and so on that's that's what gives us a sudden level of prestige to to them that that, that in turn builds the brand yeah um, but it is all very very much a matter of of personal um 
yeah, taste and 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 so on. Like it is, it is entirely subjective, just like it is with art and other other more, you know, or even you know your your comparison earlier about watches and 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 vintage cars. Like you know, mm. there there are obviously people out there that would consider certain brands of car, uh, you know, even historically to be completely shite and not pay anything for them, even though they've been around for many many years. Like yeah. you know, but 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 um, but but for whatever reason, there's just a prestige assigned to certain you know others. It, it is enti entirely entirely subjective isn't it ultimately yeah. yeah it is and it's um you know as a result that's why i think it's so important if you're approaching wine as an investment so mm. purely for anticipated financial returns why you have to put your own personal preference aside mm. because you know thank thankfully <laughs> my own preference for wine none of it is really investment grade so right. i i sort of i love a riesling a Gewurz, a Tremina. um but you would be very hard pressed, I think, to find an investment grade quality wine in in either of those two styles. Mm. Um, but that's probably a good thing, because I think if you had investment grade wine, <laughs> you'd be very poor man. Yeah, exactly. Like, so, every, totally, totally. every but, time you'd be eating dinner, uh, you know, having dinner, you'd just be, you know, basically, you know, uh, you know, you have to call your bank manager uh, just to, to justify you sitting at the table. Do you know what I mean? If you are enjoying this episode, please subscribe like and share your thoughts in the comments so, yeah like, it, it, well totally but but that's why you know you need to when you're investing in wine put your own personal preferences aside right like you said yeah yeah, yeah. it's not to do with what you like to drink it's it's an investment yeah exactly and, and you know the, the the cultural trends are you know changing all of the time and evolving i mean at the moment mm. dry champagne for example is very in fashion um right. and a lot of people would see like a sweet champagne as being a bit gauche but, you know, 200 years ago, sweet champagne, super, super sweet champagne was mm. all of the rage. You know, the widow Clicquot, so Verve Clicquot, um, you know, started by selling super sweet champagne to Russia because that was mm. the, the fashionable thing, you know, in the midst of the Napoleonic Wars. Mm. Um, whereas now you just wouldn't get that. So, so change of, tastes are evolving. And I think, you know, as millennials and Gen Z become wealthier and start looking at, you know, acquiring luxury assets of which wine is of course a very prominent one you know we're seeing this trend where people are drinking less but drinking better and mm. you know that's going to be i think a a very interesting trend for the investment grade wine market because my my suspicion is that people are going to start spending more on wine so buying higher end bottles but less often um right right and you know that i think that's going to be a, a an interesting trend because i think it will shift price points upwards and that's going to have a great impact on on quality um and i think it will also open the door for producers that perhaps haven't been able to get into the the spotlight so to speak so far to mm. take advantage of these these sort of changing tastes and changing trends to to produce something for a for a new audience that you know if they're established enough might end up becoming an investment grade wine so Mm. Yeah, it's an ever-evolving landscape. Um, yeah, and I suppose that's an interesting point as well, which I, I didn't think of until you just mentioned it, which is, you know, we are seeing a, an, an increase in, in younger, high uh, uh, net worth individuals, right, mm. in the age of, you know, uh, content creators and Twitch streamers and, you know, mm. uh, uh, and even young esports um, 
you know, celebrities and, and all this sort of stuff. So we're, we're seeing an increase in, in individuals who are, you know, under 30, who are extremely wealthy, and who are looking to diversify their investment portfolio and looking for new areas. And so, so almost like it ties into what you were saying about Web3 and the future of your platform yeah. and the future of investment as a whole. Like it, it does seem to solidify the fact that there's going to be a demand for that. Yeah, tokenization of it, but also um, that there's going to be inevitably some sort of impact on the investment uh, on the asset class itself. Like you sure. said, where, where in fact it could be that the these individuals end up creating value in in a product. Like I mean, a great example of that. I mean, look, uh, not to, to make the uh, I'm not making a one by one comparison here by any means, but you know, just looking at Prime as a drink and yeah. how and how that that was made into an asset class <laughs> yeah. overnight by a bunch of idiots right essentially um and uh i mean obviously that's that's since you know been and gone and died but as is often the case with these with these sort of fad investments but yeah. it's really interesting that 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 could occur and i wonder if you know once these individuals or other individuals who come along in a similar way um instead of trying to create their own they they look at what else is out there and maybe go to a vineyard in chile or or argentina and say look let's let's turn this investment grade with my followers with my influence with my audience we can do that and that would be really interesting to see a sort of wave of of the new world meeting the old world in some ways um, yeah. in affecting that i think i think you're completely spot on um we've seen this trend to a degree in spirits um yes we have yeah that's true with with uh with certain celebrity uh endorsements and so on it can have a, a huge impact can't it yeah yeah and, and we've also seen it for <laughs> which makes sense so from a mass market perspective so um i am slightly ashamed to say well i'm not so slightly ashamed to be honest i'll wear my heart on my sleeve but um one of the best supermarket rosés that you can buy in my opinion is Kylie Minogue Rosé. Um, oh, really? Know, okay. It is, well, I mean, it's it's all about personal preference, but it's, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. lovely Rosé. Um, yeah, I could never get on with Rosés full stop, really. Really? <laughs> really? Yeah, unless unless it was a fairly dry Rosé, maybe. But then I was just like, well, it's so dry at this point, I might as well just be drinking a fucking red. You know what I mean? yeah, yeah, or, yeah. or a really good white. It was just like, why am I in between? But um, yeah. but really, so, I, never, I didn't even know she had a Rosé. Well, yeah, so so it's um it's a really interesting one because obviously that's produced for the mass market, um, mm. but it's really high quality, and obviously that's the, you know, the association of uh, an influencer, um, right. or a celebrity in this case, I suppose, with a um with a vineyard has 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 meant that it's got, you know, it. it I'm not saying I got into it because I'm a super you know Kylie Minogue fan, yeah, um, but you know, <laughs> outed, outed. <laughs> um, but you know that that's the kind of trend that you're referring to, and I think you're completely right. You know, if if you can associate yeah i'd love to see this happen with new world wines mm. because i think that would be you know how does a chilean wine break through the the kind of pricing barrier that we've discussed you know well if a a george clooney or someone with some sophistication and a great reputation kind of really gets behind them and, and makes it really exclusive i think that's a yeah you're right that could be a, a really really interesting trend um i suppose the only the only danger there is that it's going to create a, a lot of volatility in the market in the same ways that like i use primacy example where there's sort of that there's a hype train behind something it shoots up and then it crashes yeah. i mean that, that's probably the the only the trade-off that you would get in that environment where you would yeah. probably have a lot of old school investors and old school individuals within the world of, of wine or spirits or whatever it might be yeah. getting 
pretty much pitted against the new school where there's a lot of people trying to get in it for a, a quick buck you know trading you know uh, buying and selling very very quickly and 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 pretty much screwing it, it up for everyone else yeah. i mean there would probably have to be some sort of division i imagine between these sort of the, these old world um invest investable grade uh, wines yeah. and, and maybe the new school but but uh, yeah. it would be interesting to see and like you said i mean everything's probably going to be um investable at some point so it's yeah. it's it's just going to be a, a, a sort of following along that trend i am a, a bigger trend that that's yeah no i think that's i think that's also i think that's a really interesting point um i mean the 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 other thing that's um an interesting well development i think in in the wine world is in bordeaux um you have this concept of on premier which is essentially like almost like wine futures so right. um the the kind of the great producers of Bordeaux have these these people who are contracted to buy their wines before they're produced. So they're hoping or they're anticipating that the vintage is going to be, you know, a good one so they can make some money on it. Mm. And at the moment, that is really just limited to to France. And it would be really interesting to see that trend become global uh, mm. in many ways, because you know, wine production is very capital intensive. And the release of capital for wine producers I think will lead inevitably to better quality wines being produced. Mm, producers willing to take more of a risk, um, perhaps get away from just the need for you know commercial mass market sales. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of speculating here, but that could be an interesting trend. Mm, definitely, definitely. Hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's funny. Like when, whenever um, anyone talks about wine investment, I always think back to I can't remember what film it was exactly, but it was a it was a a, a film about some sort of post apocalyptic um, thing. Maybe you might remember if, if you're into movies, because I like my, my films. And uh, and I just I remember this one particular scene where it's a load of people sat in a wine cellar, like they've just escaped a horde of zombies or something like that, and they're just yeah. basically completely destroying some of the most uh, you know expensive bottles of wine in the world, like. When it comes to that, my point, I, there was not really a point to that. I just, I just wanted to share that. But, um, but, but it does. It, that <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, my, my subtle warning of the, the impending zombie apocalypse. But, um, but no, but, but, but I guess my, my point I'm trying to make is, you know, what, you know, we talk about the, 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 um, when you mentioned about uh, investment grade wine. Mm. what distinguishes it from other forms of wine is it's, it's going to increase in value for whatever reason um and generally gets better with with age yeah but um priorities change globally right yes. and uh you know everything has a limit so um you know is it really uh has it got the same uh sort of stability let's say as some of the more traditional uh asset classes such as gold silver uh sugar yeah oil you know like or or is there is there more i mean there's a risk of every investment but but mm. is it would it be considered slightly more risky and I, and the reason why i'm asking this is because of yeah. you know there are inevitably people listening or watching right now that maybe can, you know as a, for the first time hearing this and thinking okay i'm going to do some research and yeah yeah this. yeah and we should be quite transparent ideally about you know the information that we're putting out there i think for you know, sure for sure yeah this disclaimer not financial advice right um so yeah, I mean, what 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 do you make of that? Is that is that just? I mean, could that be true of basically everything? Is it kind of a moot point, really, that, that I'm, I'm bringing up here? Yeah, sure. So um, it might be good for me to provide some some graphs to back up with what back up what I'm about to say. Um, but I actually think wine behaves a lot like gold in the sense that it protects on the downside. Um, right. A key factor with wine is that one, it's not traded with leverage. 
But secondly, as I've touched on already, if you go to sell a large portfolio of wine, there has to be buyers in the market. So mm. what you see is, you know, we've had a little bit of a bear market over the last few months, um, you know, in the, in, in the wine markets. Uh, but ultimately, people will just stop buying or they'll stop buying at prices in which people that are looking to sell wine are willing to sell it. So it always recovers quite quickly. So as a result, it's a very stable asset class. Genuinely, it behaves a lot like almost like government bonds. Um, oh, interesting. In terms of its stability. Um, for that mm. reason, it, it is difficult to, you know, equities. You could, you, you could just simply dump a portfolio of equities if you wanted mm. to very quickly. Mm. Uh, you can't really do that with wine. Um, so I think that's that's one element to consider. But having said that, this is why we obsess about that handful of investment grade wine regions that we mentioned. So I will not put any of my clients um, or any of our customers in, you know, capital in the non-core investment grade regions. You know, I'm even a little bit shy about putting it in the in the Rhone Valley um, mm. because, you know, if you if you do it right, wine could be a very stable investment, but you need to choose wines that have all of the characteristics that make them valuable for resale um yeah. you know great vintages great brands um you know high quality wines with great critic scores uh, and from and it tastes a lot better than gold i suppose so there's always that it does it, it does yeah i don't know if you've ever tried drinking gold but i, I wouldn't recommend it <laughs> any gold um, schlager is not quite the same yeah, um, yeah, good point. yeah. So, so it does behave a lot like it is it is quite a um a stable asset because it's tangible you know, it's right, a, right. it is a store. It's treated as a store of value, which I think is interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. All right. So look, to peel back the curtain a little bit. Um, you, you, you know, I want to, to uh, understand a bit more about what you've been doing um, sure. the last couple of months, especially this last week. So you said, you know, you've had a massive influx of interest. A lot of people wanting to yeah. get early access, I assume, because that's the stage that you're at right now. Right. You, yeah. You're allowing people to, to register the, their interest in, in getting early access to the platform. So what's that looking like? You know, you, especially mm. while trying to balance that with 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 investment uh you know you're currently closing the round i mean that's that's kind of nuts because of you know i i speak with a lot of founders on a weekly basis yeah. monthly basis and you know the the number one sort of piece of advice i tend to give as a commercial advisor is pick a lane because of trying to do business development and do investment uh you know going out on the, the investment uh side of things is 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 a two-person job you need yeah. to clone yourself it's it's full time both both ends so so yeah. how on earth have you been managing that and what do you think's contributed to to such a huge amount of interest in 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 your in your platform and your, your business yeah. is it is it have you got an existing network that just responded well to it or is it yeah i've asked you about a thousand questions so go for no, it no problem <laughs> no problem so so i was very lucky um so my previous role so i was commercial director at an early stage startup my um the founder of that startup the ceo um was uh, very sort of kindly allowed me to to fundraise whilst i was still employed at that business oh wow um, okay so i had largely finished the fundraise by the time i went full-time on winify so mm. uh, you know i was taking calls in the evenings and things i wasn't big uh <laughs> in case yeah, he's yeah. listening yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah exactly. <laughs> sorry, sorry totally Josh. taking calls here in the zone. come on <laughs> oh dear um you don't work so, from anymore don't be afraid it's fine <laughs> you're free <laughs> yeah, but, um, but you know, so so by the time I launched, the the fundraise was largely complete. You know, I mentioned already that we'd got the the regulatory structure underway, the platforms under development. Mm. Um, but you know, we're at the stage now where we're closing the round, so there's a lot of um, you know, sort of rounding up investors. Um, we've bought a couple of early stage funds on board, which I'm incredibly grateful for because I think it sends a a real message to future customers of the business 
number one, that a reputable fund has done due diligence on us. And I mm. think that's, you know, trust is a major issue in the alternative asset space because so much yeah, of it is unregulated. Yeah. Um, and I think having an association with a fund um, until until we've closed with them, I don't I don't want to announce them on this podcast. But by the time it's released, I'm 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 sure I will have announced already. Mm. Um, you know, I think that I think that's really critical. Um, so that's been good, um, and we are uh, raising a little bit more. So it looks like we'll over raise for our pre seed. Um, so, but yeah, let's talk about the launch. So I soft launched really just with an announcement on LinkedIn. So I'd been building a a mailing list for. Um, for a few months, uh, we'd had about 1,200 people signed up. So I, I knew that it was of interest because I did. Effectively... How are you going about doing that? Because I think that's really interesting for people to understand, you know, because I think yeah. you, quite often here I managed to do this, but how did you practically manage to build up a mailing list like that? So this is this is where I, I really think I had confidence to go full time on the idea because the big question mark in my mind was, as you as we joked about at the beginning of this podcast, are people going to invest in wine if they're not able to drink it? And when you're talking to angel investors, often, you know, they're, they're wealthy individuals, they're into wine themselves. One of the pushbacks that I received quite a lot was around that point. And yeah. ultimately, until you have people that are, you know, that have, have shown, you know, willing to put money in to a, to a collection of wine that they're not able to drink, you haven't really got any proof that, um, that people are actually going to go for that sort of model. So that was something that was, that was in the back of my mind. Mm. So I did quite an extensive market research exercise where um, I basically sent out a, uh, a really a type form survey to a bunch of strangers on LinkedIn. And I was amazed at, at the sort of response I got. Um, and I had chosen these individuals because they were members of either groups relating to wine, groups related to alternative assets, or groups relating to investing. Mm. And the response I received was really positive. So um, I had, had several hundred people get back to me. But I'd already built the landing page at this point. So a really basic one with just a, you know, subscribe here link. And uh, one, they, uh, many of them went onto the, that landing page and entered their own details. But mm. presumably, many of them also told friends and colleagues and things, because I saw this spike of activity really just from doing some market research. So I, I saw that as a, a really compelling sign. Mm. Um, and then other than that, I spun up a Twitter account. So I, have, um, I had a, a little Twitter following already, but I spun up a separate Twitter account for Winify. Um, and saw some some quite good traction quite early on from that. And then I literally published a few Reddit posts and Indie Hackers articles, really saying, you know, this is what we're planning, just to see the kind of response we got. And I think people really embraced it. I remember, you know, really the decision um, or, or the sort of level of, of traction that I saw that really convinced me to have a conversation with my former boss and say, look, I, I, I'm, I want to leave to pursue this full time. Um, and this was a job I loved, by the way, my, my previous one. So it's not a it's not an easy decision. Um, mm. You know, wine investing had been a, you know, a hobby and a passion and something that I had, had done for other people. But um, it hadn't been something that I had yet, you know, taken into a, you know, a, a real a real business. Um, and, and I remember the comment, reading a comment on a, a Reddit post that I put up anonymously, basically saying this is what I was planning. And it was someone that had said um, I would put lottery tickets worth of money into a platform like this and wow. i thought wow that's a that's an endorsement on top of all the market research and everything that i'd already done uh, i thought you know what there is something here but of course until you launch publicly you don't know what kind of reception you're going to get so i was um you know i was to be honest it's the scariest thing that i've ever done launching publicly mm -hmm. on linkedin because you are setting yourself up for potentially a public failure um 
you know, if people don't respond well to what you've done or if you don't get any traction, you know, it can be a scary thought. Mm. And when I was launching, I was expecting maybe 10 inbound inquiries on the first day. Um, and instead, we ended up with 60,000 impressions from a LinkedIn video that I published and a, like a, an announcement that I put up, 60,000 impressions on the first day and about 120 inbound um, inquiries on the website. Wow. Uh, some of which have already converted into customers. So I've had calls with them um, this week and at the end of last week. Um, we've been building bespoke portfolios and also selling out an early collection. Mm. Um, and that's been, it's been really overwhelming actually. Mm. Um, I, you know, I'm incredibly grateful, um, but it has been, uh, you know, my, my, all of my priorities have suddenly switched from going, okay, you know, I've got a few weeks leeway just to get this thing off the ground to going, right. Okay. You know, we're, we're in business now. Yeah. And there yeah. is a sense and a lot of entrepreneurs speak about this, you know, you're, you're building the parachute on the way down. So, yeah. um, you know, I remember, and, and thankfully this was a few weeks before we launched, but, um, someone had referred the first customer that I didn't know that wasn't like a first degree connection. Um, and because people knew that I was running these private collections at the time. And, uh, you know, I, I, I want this business to be unbelievably customer centric. You know, I, I want everything we do to be completely transparent, but importantly, I want us to be the name when it comes to wine investing, you know, in the same way that Vanguard is the name for index funds or Blackstone is for property or Masterworks is for art. I want Winefy to be like the go-to name that you think of when you think of wine investing. Mm. And so that means doing everything very professionally from the get-go. Mm. And when you're investing other people's money, there is no room for error. There isn't the same sort of forgiveness that you might have for beta users of an early stage tech startup. Yeah, you know, people yeah. expect you to deliver straight away. <laughs> and um, you know, this customer that was coming on board, I thought, fucking hell, I haven't even got a terms of service. Mm. So I had to speak to a law firm, get a terms of service drafted, um you know get an order form in place with them and you know all of this is being done you know it's like it's like um you know we we have we knew we had the supply side locked down and we have this fantastic investment committee which is really comprised of a who's who of the global wine trade so this real kind of expert knowledge um mm. but it's almost like you know in terms of actually building the business and the infrastructure needed to engage with customers it almost felt like playing the piano but staying one piano lesson ahead of the person that you're teaching um which is has been an interesting experience but you know it seems that we've got the fundamentals in place the response has been has been excellent and what has surprised me is you know i think i i, I was I, I can be very self-critical and um i think what surprised me is is because of the way that we've launched i launched from my personal linkedin profile people are engaging with me personally and the you know client calls that i've had uh, over the last few weeks you know, it's almost people are so interested in the idea that wine investing is being made accessible, that people are volunteering feedback and volunteering what they would like to see. You mm. know, I had someone, um, someone who who um, I, I believe will end up investing investing through us. We're still in discussions at the moment, um, but he pointed out. He said, "Oh, you know, you're not on Crunchbase. Have you raised? Have you raised venture capital?" And I said, "Yes, you know, we have." But it, you know, I never would have considered that as being a, a proof point. You know, mm. I never thought being on Crunchbase means anything to a to a customer, but of course, it adds that additional layer of reassurance that you are legitimate. You know, a right. VC has done due diligence, all of this kind of thing, um, and so little suggestions like that are really helpful. And you know, what I think is amazing about the, the 
you know, the 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 way that we've ended up because of this public launch um, and the the inbound interest that we've seen is we are almost building the business in real time to the requirements of our customers. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're building in public. We've got really really short feedback loops, and that to me is incredibly exciting because it brings mm-hmm. it brings the people that you you care about serving into the design process. And when I talk about building the most customer centric investment business, you know, that's that's the level. formed by you know real customer conversations or real prospect yeah. conversations and i think that's really um yeah I, I feel like if if we can get that right and it's you know it's it's something that you obviously have to constantly be engaging with customers on then i don't see how it doesn't work out because mm. you know we we have access to fantastic assets we've got access to the expertise that we need to put together fantastic collections of investment grade wine and if we're just listening to customers and building what they want then you know that's the that's the future that i'm excited about um mm. you know and and i and i'm i'm glad that we went to market as it were you know revenue generating prior to actually having a platform you know i'd say mm. we have a product because you know we're, we're putting together these collections of wine but we don't have a, a tech platform and i'm really grateful that we hadn't released the platform on day one as a result because i mm. i'm certain that the way that our customers or i'm certain that based on the conversations i've had so far our customers will inform our our tech roadmap so yeah yeah apologies for that slightly rambling response no i know that's that's a great response and 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 it's one that i've been beating a drum on for a while now which is essentially Mm. you know what you're describing essentially is a community-led uh uh commercial strategy which uh, you know it's i'm well known for beating the drum on and and and, you know what's interesting about what you said there is the way you went about it you know um Mm. Uh, which is to to go and find the communities of people in your early market research. You know, find these individuals who who, who you you believe fit your thesis of your your ideal customer profile, and just ask them what they want, and ask them if this is you know I'm thinking of doing this thing. What do you think? And it's something yeah. that I again I bang that drum again and again and again. You know, before moving forward with anything, that's what everyone should be doing. And and there is a group for everything online, whether it's on Reddit, on Facebook, on Twitter, on on yeah. on, on LinkedIn, on Instagram. You know, whatever that they, they, they exist. So go and find them and ask them, yeah. and and ideally bring them in to the process of building the company. And I think I think the only um, the only risk that a lot of organisations have at, at your sort of stage is is to um, to scale the organization too quickly i mean that's really all all there is you've got you know everything is there in front of you it's just you know i think the temptation is especially when funding lands you know and there's a sort of significant amount in the bank to go okay well let's hire 50 people and that's where the problems start right because you know that's that's where inevitably um a lot of that uh, the vision that you have becomes diluted and and that customer-centric approach goes by the wayside in favor of fast progress and yeah. and uh, and that's, that's something of a contradiction i think in the world of startups where we talk about you know move fast and break things it's like well yeah inevitably you're also going to break the trust of your and, and the relationships with your customers so yeah. you know there are certain things to move fast on but others to take your time on and i think that's very much one of them especially if you've been fortunate enough to build that relationship so you know yeah uh, uh, you know I, th- I think what's bowled me away is the engagement from strangers Mm. so from the beginning i wanted i didn't 
you know, obviously you speak to your Well, friend. like me, I reached out to you, you know, having seen what's happened. And I was like, this is interesting. Tell me about yeah. it, you know, because, because it, yeah, exactly. You, you, but you were also making a good amount of noise. So that's, that's yes. good too, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, it's those little wine investment videos. Uh, very funny. Right. So I, I produced, uh, obviously, as you will have seen, I've made a few wine. And this is another thing. I'll get onto this topic in a minute. There mm. are no resources if you want to learn about wine investing. You right. can go online. Go on Amazon, type in wine investing. There are mm. three books and the main thrust of all three of them is get a broker to do it for you. You know, there are so right. few resources. <laughs> are they written there. by brokers? Yeah, <laughs> brokers yeah, 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 yeah. Lead gen and lead gen tool. But um, yeah, exactly. You know, what I what I wanted to do was was really give investors all of the facts. So if they wanted to go away and build their own portfolios without ever speaking to uh, a wine investment company, then they have the ability to go and do it. In the same way that, you know, if you wanted to sell direct on your stock investments or crypto investments, you know, you're free to do so. Um, so I started I started producing these these um, kind of LinkedIn videos, these like one or two minute videos uh, talking about various facets of wine investing. So the difference between wine investing and wine collecting, why you have to store wine in a bonded warehouse versus in your cellar at home if you want to retain its value. You know, all of these different things. I had someone reach out after about video six and say look this is all very interesting but are you actually going to talk about any actual investment grade wines at any point which i just thought was like <laughs> the, the best candid feedback going so i released one yeah. earlier this week on bordeaux first growth but um you know that's the kind of thing that you would have from a stranger because they just you know they don't care they don't know yeah, you yeah. They, they 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 want they want you know they're interested in what you're doing but they unless they have a, a relationship with you or they end up developing a relationship with you they don't really care about you uh, which mm. makes complete sense. They care about the output. But yeah. as a result, that kind of thing produces that level of candor. And that level of candor for me is fantastic because it's like, great, okay, well, that's a steer that I need to stop talking about bloody warehousing and start talking about the actual wines that people want to invest in. So. Well, yeah, and it's the only useful kind of feedback that you can get in business and in life, to be completely yeah. frank. I mean, I've talked about this on numerous occasions, but friends and family are the worst people to give you advice on anything, right? Yeah. Because, you know, <laughs> let alone business, because, you know, if you go to them, at the end of the day, they want what's best for you, right? In, in inverted yeah. commas. But, and, and I spoke with a psychologist about this recently believe it or yeah not. and we and she she verified my my uh my my thesis on this which is yeah. which is very much embedded in 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 the data uh, uh that, that's found among psychologists which is that the people caring about your well-being is actually caring about their well-being because yeah. what it is is um like let's say i went to my mother and i said look mum, i've got this idea for a business it's going to cost this much money it's going to be hard yeah. work the, the reason why she's going to go oh are you sure that's a good idea is because she's going to be the first person that has to pick up the pieces if it all goes wrong, right? Yeah. <laughs> and same as my wife and so on. So actually, there's a, there's a certain amount of in, in, inbuilt, um, uh, completely un, un, uh, uh, sort of unintentional um, yeah. uh, selfishness to the to the advice you get from friends and families. How much how much oh. grief is this going to fucking cause me, basically, if it all goes wrong? And also, you know, how much grief am I going to get if I criticize too heavily and say what I really think? You know, yeah. so yeah, it's yeah, always yeah. going to be tempered with that personal relationship. But yeah, you're right. Rip the bandaid off. Tell people how it is. I mean, you don't have to be mean about it. You know, absolutely. There's, you know, I think there's a difference between people who are just outright insulting uh, yeah. versus, you know, actual constructive criticism. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's incredibly useful. And everyone should be seeking it out. And, and that's a problem. I don't think... Uh, I don't think a lot of people are thick-skinned enough to do that. But you, given your background and what you've done for a living, I think that's that's probably given you a certain amount of thick skin to be able to take it as well. well right? Working in sales, I think, is is a hundred percent. hundred times a day. Um, yeah. it's good for you. I think everyone everyone should work in hospitality and in sales. Like <laughs> everyone. 
Like, I would even say at this point, you know, considering the state of our schools, that, that it'd probably be better for our, our kids to be just going straight into working in a restaurant, uh, you know, in, in a food service yeah. industry, for example, and then maybe, you know, uh, doing a year or two in sales. And then that way, they're probably more prepared for the world than our, our primary schools are making. <laughs> yeah, well, you're probably not wrong. But but just to, just to you know, to, to, to use a horrible phrase, double click on, on that point you've made. So I watched one of your... Um, one of your your other podcast guests recently um oh good i've got a viewer that's fantastic and she, <laughs> she was, uh, <laughs> you promised me viral reach with this podcast great right? uh, yeah um no, no, yeah, yeah. Read, read the fine print <laughs> yeah. yeah no but she was um she said something really interesting i thought which was uh you know in the early days she took you took you take everything personally and mm. when i was going into fundraising so i'd obviously spoken to you know some some far more successful people than myself and you know even peers of the same age um who have run some some incredible companies i'm very lucky to have people in my network um who run companies like charged up and lottie um you know some some really really impressive entrepreneurs and a lot of them compared the fundraising process to to selling so you know mm. you have you know build a pipeline and it is you know, it's about, 100%. it is but so so i'd slightly naively thought okay you know this is i i'm familiar with that this isn't, you know, I never thought it was going to be a walk in the park, but, you know, I thought, okay, this is, this is within my, my area of core competence or it's within my, my, um, you know, my comfort zone to a degree. Mm. But what I wasn't prepared for was when it is your baby, when it's an idea that you've become really, really passionate about as a founder, you know, f for me, it's become a need to make this a real asset class and to make, mm. you know, gaining exposure to the wine market as easy as placing a trade on Robinhood or eToro or free trade. Um, you know, it's it's absolutely something that the world needs, in my opinion, at least the financial world. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's not going to solve the, cli the climate crisis or anything like that. But it's, you know, it's something that I've become obsessed with. You know, there's no other way of saying yeah. it. That is that is my obsession. Hmm. And when you have people. I don't think anyone overtly was like, this is a shit idea. But when you have people go, mm, I'm not going to invest for these reasons, you do take it personally. And that mm -hmm. was something that I hadn't been prepared for. Um, and, you know just getting to the point where we're closing this funding round and you know I'm, I've gone live on LinkedIn so to speak and I'm looking to build this business I'm really having to learn resilience uh, mm. in a way that I haven't had to before and a large part of that is there is nowhere to hide now you know I mm. am solely responsible for the success of the business but more importantly for the success of that mission to make it feasible for wine to be a part of every investment portfolio for the first time there mm. are no excuses you can't hide behind Oh, if something doesn't go according to plan, you can't say, you know, as, as you as you often do in sales, you know, oh, you know, this the budget was cut or the champion moved. You know, the the end result is all that matters. So it's on the roadmap. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, and I the think servers that, went down. Sorry about that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I but I think that sense of utter ownership mm. and not having anyone. So I've got mentors, um, and I have advisors you know, in the business, uh, but who aren't as close to the coalface clearly as I am. Mm, um, and, you know, I, I think not having someone that you can turn to and say, um, oh yeah, how would you go about doing this? Uh, because they don't have all of the facts or whatever can be mm. quite difficult. So I'm very conscious to build a, a support network um, to, to make sure that I have, I have someone to lean into. Like I found the last couple of weeks, you know, my, me just thinking, oh, it'd be great to have someone to ask about X and then mm. thinking, actually, I've got to be that person. So, yes. you know, it is the the move from an employee mentality to a founder mentality 
Mm. Now, considering this is all I've ever wanted to do, you know, I've, I've only ever wanted to be a founder and I've been obsessed with this particular concept for a very long time. Mm. I hadn't expected that transition, especially having been in an early stage startup in the past. You know, it's not like I'm moving from JP Morgan straight to becoming a founder. You know, I mm. have had these relevant stops along the way. I wasn't expecting that shift in mentality to be as profound as I found it. Um, and it's exciting, mm. but it's also, it is also a shift. You know, you have to rise to that challenge. It must be unnerving to a degree. Yeah. I mean, what, what's interesting, I mean, what my takeaway from that is, um, it sounds to me like you, you, the, the emotional response you had to your activity was kind, kind of blind, blindsided you a bit, that you weren't expecting that. Because, because you got so used to taking that out of the equation. Uh, yeah. in your interactions you know in, in your selling that you were surprised by that that emotional response which you know ordinarily we're told is something to to, to remove from the equation because it's not productive right yeah and, and i don't think it, i don't think it is productive i mean th there are elements of it that are good but it's understandable know? it is right? and in it some is. ways and in some ways it would be i think it would be worrying if it wasn't there because if, like especially if you're speaking to investors and they don't see that well that would would wouldn't make you an investable founder yeah right true so so i mean it has to be there to a degree i think it's maybe not so much a problem that it happens it's more uh, it would be a problem if you didn't deal with it yeah but and it's you know what i mean <laughs> no i do completely know what you mean and it's, yeah. it's also just how much you care about the problem that right. i then think translates through into being you know the, the one that will solve that problem and exactly. you know, this, is, this is slightly grandiose considering that we're, we're in the earliest stages of this business no but, but i think you're spot quote, yeah. yeah but there's that great quote you know if my if my demons leave me, I fear my angels will too, which I think can be very much applied to that mm. kind of, you know, you take things personally because you care and because you care, you will get it done. At least that's what I'm hoping anyway. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and yeah, I think it's, it's, it's you know, it, just like in sales, um, if you are speaking with a certain degree of passion about what it is you're selling, you're more inclined to, to close that sale, whether mm. that's passion in the form of knowledge, because you are very yeah. knowledgeable about the thing that you are selling and the problem that the individual has, and you're you're mm. empathetic with their with the issue that they're that you're hoping to solve, or mm. whether that is through just a passion for people and and conversation, being able to build rapport. I think that these things do matter, and we talk a lot about removing these things from business. But in fact, that's I think it's more about how we respond to them going wrong rather than them being there in the first place. They absolutely yeah. need to be there. And investors are just the same as everyone else. If they're not going to see that, you know, you know as well as anyone that the number one, um, the, the the main criteria for an investor is: is this the person to make this business move forward? Is this the yeah. person to go ahead and solve that problem? And so, if that is a, that, that to me is an incredibly big piece of the puzzle. Which is yeah. well, I mean, is this person going to be here in two years? Do they care enough about the about the problem to to keep going? Do you yeah. know what I mean? Because they're not going to invest in a, in a temporary founder. Yeah, you know, they, they want to make sure that this founder is going to remain to exit, you know, so, yeah. or beyond, you know. Yeah. Uh, have you? Um, are you familiar with a, a woman by the name of Felicia? Oh, I'm going to screw up her surname. Felicia Schertzman. Schertzman. No, I'm not. Schertzman. Um, she's going to kill me for saying her name wrong. Um, <laughs> she's this, the founder and CEO of Tillit. Um, okay. Uh, I I recently had her episode is going to release a, a bit later on. Um, down the road, but uh, a very interesting platform. I, I I'll I'll maybe connect you to um, yeah, after great. our conversation. Yeah. But but it's interesting because she's something very similar. So she's building a platform um, essentially to uh, uh, democratize and 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 um, it, sort of uh, demystify, I guess, the, the investment landscape for 
um, invest uh, for 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 people looking to invest in funds, basically. Yeah. So so uh, you know, producing a, a marketplace of funds, pretty much, and and then you know, connecting high net worth individuals with those funds, and and taking a very similar approach to you in the sense of wanting to make it more accessible to to remove a lot of the the, the jargon and the nonsense mm. and to make things clearer for people so that anyone who's who's got a bit of money that wants to invest can find a fund without all of the bullshit surrounding it and um she went through a very similar process to you and you said almost word for word the same sort of thing about the fact that you know the expectations on launch are very different in the world of investment uh, when you're dealing with people's money then it would be, um, say, for example, if you were building a B2B SaaS platform, yeah. right, where you haven't got the flexibility uh, to have a shoddy, um, a shoddy MVP. Yeah, you know, you haven't got that 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 wiggle room. And I think that was really interesting that you both said pretty much identical, you know, identical word for word, uh, the same sort of thing. Um, how do you handle that sort of pressure, though? I mean, you you mentioned that you've now got. You know, uh, the next stage I assume is to start building the platform itself that that, that acts as the sort of foundation yeah. now for moving forward. I mean, what what's that going to look like? Is it ever going to be enough? Well, so mm -hmm. I'm I'm a big believer, and I picked this up um, during during my time at Nomio, which was the previous startup, um, in keeping things as simple as you possibly can in terms of design. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, when you're investing in wine, you know, what do you need to be able to do? Well, you need to be able to buy into a shared collection and you need to be able to track the value of the underlying assets. That's right. all relatively straightforward to do. Um, so that's going to be phase one of the platform. Um, but what I'm also keen to do is to really create a community. And also going back to what I said about there being so few resources available for wine investors. <laughs> you know, I, I want to bring both of those into the platform. So we're going to have sort of a phased rollout. Um, mm. But what is it? What has been interesting, you know, to to your point there around, you know, not not being able to get it wrong, so to speak, is um, I've been, you know, the, the, at some point we will go the institutional route. So we will be, um, you know, family offices will be investing through us. You know, even IFAs maybe maybe putting funds through us. Um, third party investment platforms as well. But at the moment, it's all individuals. So it's high net worth individuals who are looking to invest in wine, but it's also, you know um regular regular investors let's say that want to gain exposure and what's been really interesting and this has been a theme in our launch is how do you build trust with those people if they don't know you at all so the mm. first thing and i've actually taken a few lessons from web3 in this um in this respect but how do you build trust with people who don't know you from adam um, and the first thing and the reason that i launched on linkedin i didn't want to launch as a brand i didn't want to launch as winify because mm. You know who's who's behind it i wanted to launch as callum woodcock um yeah and i thought by producing these videos and bringing people into the conversation there's naturally a degree of of trust established because you've doxed yourself to use web yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. you've revealed yourself publicly um so i think that's that's a, a key point and then also even our um so we have an investment committee that is really a who's who of the global wine trade as i mentioned um we mm. have two professional wine investors and two masters of wine uh, of which there's only 416 in existence. So there's more astronauts than masters of wine, just to give you an idea. They they um, would make a great asset class themselves then. They would, yeah, very exclusive. Yeah, very, <laughs> it's painful to fractionalize them though, I think. But um, Yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh, yeah, I mean, their nose is essentially going to be the, the thing that's worth the most. Right? <laughs> yeah. um, a friendly reminder to share this episode with your network, subscribe for more and join the conversation in the comments. It really helps us out. Thank you. But uh, 
you know, they, they have been number one, incredibly um, valuable to me as, as mentors and advisors. Um, you know, I, I couldn't have, I couldn't have built this business without them. They've been, they have been phenomenal, but also their association and their willingness to be associated with this embryonic wine investment business that is really redefining the way that people invest in wine, because, you know, you're not building a private collection. In many cases, you're buying into these shared collections. Um, I think is an important factor because it's it's connecting the sort of old guard with this new vision that we've got for wine investing. Um, mm. And that naturally establishes trust because there's continuity there. Um, yeah. And we've already spoken about the importance of having a, a venture fund on board. And, you know, we have angel investors from BlackRock, Investech, Fidelity, T. Rowe Price, JP Morgan Asset Management. Um, all of All of that kind of coalesces to build this base layer of trust. And I think that is... Well, and so, I assume on a more basic level as well, it, it, it's probably incredibly useful from your perspective to get a certain level of insight and learn a lot of uh, things that presumably you didn't know about when, when you started the journey. I mean, I assume you, you made a fair sure. amount of assumptions early on, and and uh, which would be expected, um, whilst you, you knew it a fair bit because you were already investing in, in it. Um, I assume bringing these people on board and having them close by and being able to pick their brains oh. put you in an, an immeasurable amount of uh, oh, information, right? It's incredible. I mean, they're, they're, I'm forever grateful. I hope they're all listening to this because I'm sucking up directly to them. Um, mm, but, I hope so too, because then we'll have more than one listener for a change. Yeah, exactly. You'll have at least four. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> um, no, but they, I mean, you know, they've taught me an absolutely colossal amount um, mm. about the about the industry. And they've also put to bed some early assumptions. So, right. um, you know, one of the things that I was looking at, so when you're looking at... Um, you know, where, where does your margin come from? Um, and in an ideal world, you want to be marking wine, you know, to market price, fair market value, as opposed to above it, because you want to start your investors, um, you know, uh, above water, essentially. Course, yeah. um, and, you know, the retail market price, there's different ways of calculating that, and then you have the trade price. Um, but I was looking at all of these different wines and thinking, okay, um, you know, what's the, what's the best way to do this from our investors' perspective? You know, wh how are they going to make the best... Um, the best possible returns. And um, one one thing that I noticed was wines that were stored in cellars, so private collectors, uh, were considerably cheaper than wines that were stored in bond. And, you know, this was very naively, because at this point I hadn't realised, you know, this was 18 months ago, hadn't mm. realised uh, the significance of storing wines in bond, because it's not just that VAT and duty are suspended for as long as they're in the warehouse, but it's also that they're perfectly controlled in terms of temperature and humidity and light and things like right. that. And of course, you then have the perfect provenance because it's come directly from a producer to a negotiant straight into a bonded warehouse. Whereas mm. if it's in someone's cellar, it's disappeared from the view of the market. No one has any idea how it's stored. And one thing I think I was particularly naive about that our investment committee very quickly set me straight on uh, was around wine forgery. So one of them basically said, uh, look, you know, if, if, if a wine is taken out of bond, its value evaporates because people don't know what's happened to it. And they use the example of improperly cellaring it and things. And I thought, yeah, okay, but you know, you can get temperature controlled facilities that that major wine collectors will have at home, for example. Mm. And uh, and they kind of went, no, 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 sort of put put a proverbial arm around my shoulder, and basically said, look, wine forging is an endemic problem. Uh, and just to give you your listeners an idea, so that many of them will be familiar with, you know, a top top. Um, one of our investment committee estimates that there is a third more on the market than has ever been produced by the vineyard so there is a, a third of all of traded is fake mm. 
Wow. And you know that blew my mind because it, it gives you an idea of the scale of the problem. Mm. And that's not mm. something I would have had any idea about. You know, people talk about wine forgeries in the same way that they talk about you know old master paintings being forged. And mm. you know, you it, I think it's easy to kind of think, oh, you know, this is something that happens, but it's a very small percentage. And I hadn't quite realised how major, you know, a, a factor that is, and how important it is to to be able to show that perfect provenance, which we can with all of our investment grade wines. Um, mm. So that was a very interesting, an interesting one. And if your listeners are interested in learning more, uh, there's a great Netflix documentary about wine forging called Sour Grapes. Um, okay. That is a great, it's a great kind of Sunday, Sunday evening watch if they're, mm. they're into that kind of thing. Oh, I've not heard this, so I might give that a watch as well. That's interesting. really interesting story, uh, and a book mm. called Billionaire's Vinegar as well, which is about the same kind of theme. Um, but mm. it just it blew my mind because it's one of those things where you thought, you know, where unless you're in the trade, you don't you don't know how much of a problem that is. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I just thought that was very interesting. Wow, that is interesting. I, I would have had no idea that it would have been that much of a, a problem. I know. I know. Yeah. But I guess I mean wherever there's money, there's always going to be this sort of uh, this sort of thing, right? Totally. Um, and yeah and older bottles as well you know in newer bottles there are there are ways of kind of ensuring that you can identify whether it's a real bottle or not but because right. these chateaus have you know histories dating back hundreds of years mm. the older bottles that don't have those kind of technology you know applied to them mm. you know it's it's easier to fake kind of thing yeah yeah so um so what's next for you um you've got uh like you said, you're closing off this round. Um, so I'm yep. assuming you're going to be able to make some announcements about that in the coming weeks. Yep. Um, and, and then what's the, what's the first step? I mean, I did touch on a little bit about, um, you know, about my, my often my biggest concern with, with, uh, with businesses and how, when they first get that, that money in the bank that, you know, one of two things can happen. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's like, you know, uh, all hands on deck, let's hire as many hands as possible kind of thing, or, yep. you know, a bit more of a slow and steady approach. But what, What's your first high going to be? What are your first moves going to be in in bringing things to the next stage with the business? Yeah, a great question. So um, first hire, um, I'll be bringing on a, a co-founder. So I have someone in mind um, who sort of comes from a wide well, background. I'll, I'll be honoured. Thank you so much. That's very yeah, yeah, welcome aboard, Greg. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, we'll be bringing on a co-founder. Um, and I think it's also important to have some sort of development expertise Um you know, in-house at the moment we've we've outsourced because as I said, the technology is relatively straightforward, but we want yeah. to to bring development expertise in-house as quickly as possible. Mm. Um, once the platform is up and running, then it will largely be self-service, but I want to make sure that we keep this kind of white glove element that we've kept mm. so far where anyone that wants to set up some time for a call can. And in the early days, I want that to be me um, before mm. we bring on, you know, a head of investor relations or a head of operations. But I'm very keen to keep the team very lean. Um, all of our investment committee are working with us on an advisory basis, um, which is good because they're they're independent of each other. Um, and so anytime they're assembling a, a collection, there are three other people to you know vet that that is a, a you know a wise investment decision. Um, mm. So I'm very satisfied with that at the moment. But again, you know, bringing more kind of wine supply side expertise in house, I think that will be important for us. But I'm very keen to do a, a sort of a, a gradual rollout. When it comes to bringing people on board um mainly to preserve runway but also i want to test assumptions and understand what i can and can't do and what i am good at and what i enjoy um versus where my gaps are and i think mm. that is a learning actually when you're you know starting your starting a business yourself for the first time um and i've already got some ideas which is good uh and then 
really it's about i keep i, I so I, I i write these very self-critical weekly reviews where i look into what's you know what could have improved what could have been improved um mm. and i found that i found that very useful um and one thing that i keep coming back to is getting the fundamentals in place so one have everything that investors need to make informed decisions on whether to invest through us um mm. and, but then make them repeatable so every collection of wine that we release for example i want to come with a prospectus i want that to be really transparent um you know what what price did we purchase wines at why have we invested in these particular wines um so getting all of that in place is going to take a little bit of time but we're making great headway there um and then it's a matter of scaling um you know what what have we got well we've got the ability to access great assets at great valuations so we need to connect that supply side to the demand side in a in a more scalable way mm. um, and that means an online platform but that also means forms of marketing that perhaps i'm less familiar with you know my, my background is is b2b sales as opposed to sort of b2c sales mm. um so it's about building trust you know we're engaging with the pr agency for, for specifically that reason i keep coming back to if i'm investing in something how do i you know what 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 do i look for you know what what material do i want what are the kind of for a new investment business what are the proof points that i want to see what you know how do you build that trust mm. and you know this is what i was talking about having early customers that are one willing to 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 trust you from the outset but also hearing their suggestions as to how the product could be improved but also how we could build that trust you know i use the example of um you know even something as simple as being on crunchbase so people can verify that we have indeed mm. raised venture capital i think is um you know it's really important so that's where i imagine um similar to what we were talking about earlier with the the sort of younger high net worths of the world where you yeah. know there's probably going to be an opportunity there for the for the spotlight to shift somewhat from you to your investors yeah so actually it's going to be investors that may be a well known in their particular space or their industry or whatever it might be they're the ones that you know when they're put into the spotlight as being investors in the business that it will add a that that exact sort of brand recognition and and um and and level of trust for others and other investors to follow you know which, yeah uh, which I, I think you're, i think you're completely right and i mean when you look at my angel investors in particular so you know obviously i won't name names at the moment but there are there are big names there Mm. And they're from financial institutions and wine backgrounds, predominantly. Mm. And I think that's really, really interesting because mm. it's a recognition on the wine side that there is, you know, the industry is broken. There's no other way of saying it. It caters to a, a very exclusive demographic um, on the wine investment side. And as I've said, the only people that really make money seem to be the investment firms themselves. Mm. So I think there's a recognition from the trade that something needs to be done to bring a new generation into both wine and wine investing. Right. They know but, this is the new the new direction, ultimately. I think so. I mean, we're seeing private markets become more accessible. And this is just another layer to that um, to, to, to that development. And then mm. on the financial side, I think there's a recognition that wine is a great asset class. Mm. And this is playing a role in bringing wine to the mainstream as an investment so you know i, I was um very polyamorous in the in the early stage of my sort of investment uh didn't know where i was going with that <laughs> polyamorous in terms of when i first started speaking to investors you know if someone said oh this guy's an angel investor you should speak to them mm. but what the trend that emerged very quickly was that the people that were that saw the vision and understood it were either in finance or in wine and right. i think that's really interesting 
Um, are you finding that some of the conversations you're having with investors for the business are actually showing an interest in in becoming investors on the platform itself? Are you getting a lot, having a lot of dual conversations there? You're completely right. Yes. Yeah. And um, you know, my when people are sort of umming and ahhing about it, I've said, you know, before you make a decision, would you be a customer of the platform? And almost to to you know, to every single one of them has gone yes. And so, that to me. So, is then, so then it's stop asking me questions and give me a fucking checkbook. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. <good. laughs> but equally, equally, I've had people that say, look, you know, we only invest in, or I only invest in B2B SaaS. And I completely get that. You know, if you have your right. investment thesis, that's absolutely fine. Mm -hmm. But even those people have gone, but this is the kind of thing that I would invest in as, a, right. as an individual. And, mm -hmm. and that for me is, is, is great because mm -hmm. it's further validation. And, you know, one of the things that I was wondering was, you know, would high net worth investors, would sophisticated investors invest through a platform like this, or would they go the more traditional route? And mm. I think what this journey has shown me is that people will invest, you know, high net worth investors do still like the idea that they can gain diversified exposure to the wine market at a fraction of the cost of owning the individual bottles outright. Because ultimately yeah. you can spend as much money as you want on wine. Um, and you know, you know, you could spend millions building a diversified portfolio if you wanted to. Uh, or you can get that same level of diversity by buying into 10 different Winify collections. Um, mm. And I think that's, you know, that's compelling. It's almost like, by, I don't want to use this phrase because I think it's misleading. And there are wine indices. So the LiveX produces the LiveX 1000, for example, which is like the broadest measure of investment grade wine. But it is almost like buying an index fund. You know, you're gaining exposure to multiple great wines that have been handpicked by an investment committee of experts. Um, you know, at a at a fraction of the cost of owning the individual bottles, and you're getting full price transparency. You understand where our fees are coming from. You understand how much we're making. You understand what we acquired the wines for. You understand when we're planning on selling them. You have the ability to vote on key decisions because you're a shareholder. You know, we really are bringing people into the decision making process, and I think that appeals to to a lot of people. Um, uh, your your sales background oozed through there uh, when you were playing. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> no, 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 but it was good. Yeah, was like listening to this thing. Who's this slime ball? No, what, no, I think it, it, you, anyone listening to this has just automatically got out of their checkbook. I think that's what's oh, just happened. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, going back to what I was saying briefly about about um, about maybe the shift in in approach from a, uh, a marketing perspective, I guess, a branding perspective. Like yeah. that would be that would be interesting to see. Um, you know, in, in terms of uh, uh, making the the investors you have sort of almost uh, front and center in terms of that that approach, because I think that's 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 the inevitable next stage with with uh, a business like yours in some ways, yeah. isn't it? It's, it's it's no longer about you know when you want to get to the to the wider market. It's okay. Well, what um, what investors are people following? Uh, online, you know, sort of thinking of the eToros of the world, you know, where it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So you know, look, kind of right, you know, it's like, well, what are they doing? Um, I respect these these particular investors and uh, or business individuals or high net worth individuals, whatever they may be. And yeah. so, if they're investing in in uh, wine collections, well, then um, maybe this is what I should look into too. And so, that would be a really interesting development to see yeah. from your end if that's if that's the sort of direction you'd end up going in moving I forward. I think I think so. I think it's a I think that's a clever idea. And and as you know, as you say, that kind of I'll adds, send you an invoice at the end. Yeah, yeah thank you. Um, but I think that adds to the trust element. But the thing I keep coming back to is education. Because yeah. when I was trying yeah. to learn about wine investing, so moving away from just taking advice from a broker and actually deciding what I wanted to invest in myself, you know, what I really found was just how few resources there are out there. Mm. And you know, I love um 
I can't remember. I'm going to offend whoever's running one of these data apps, dating apps. But I think it's Thursday. I don't mm. know if you've come across them, but they have yeah. fantastic marketing. And um, I think they bill themselves as the dating app that's designed to be deleted because obviously if you use it properly, then you won't need a dating app anymore. Mm -hmm. And I love the idea of having that for wine investing. So to mm. produce so many comprehensive resources that if someone decides, you know what, I'm actually really into this. I want to self-direct my own investments. They can. And mm. does that mean that, you know, they won't be using Winify? Yes, probably. They'll be, they'll be, you know, buying their own wines or making their own investment decisions. Mm. Good for them. But there will also be a lot of other people that read about it and then are able to make informed decisions to use Winify. Mm. And, you know, that to me is really exciting. So we're going to be launching a podcast. Um, you know, there aren't any wine investing podcasts, which is mind blowing to me. You know, it's yeah. this asset class is amazing. It's not tiny. You know, it's it's, um, you know, it's billions in, mm. in asset value. And yet there are no resources. Mm. It's just like it's almost it's so puzzling. And it's like this unintentionally this this kind of expertise around this asset class has remained concentrated across a a, a comparatively very small industry mm. and i just love the idea that you know i could <coughs> a wine investing book like that actually tells you how to invest in wine is baffling like yeah. can you can you imagine that in any other asset class but, i mean is it is it to some degree because it's being intentionally gatekept do you think by 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 a large part of the the community? Because I mean, you know, I imagine it's a pretty much an old boys club around a lot of this. Not all of it, like you know, maybe the individuals you're speaking with and, and have working um, as advisors. <laughs> or so on. But but I, you know, not to offend any of them. But like, I think maybe even they would probably tend to agree. Because if I've had some some dealings with the industry myself, you know, my um, my very very early uh, part of my life, you know, as a as a young man, um, I worked in uh, as a chef. I trend in France. Oh. Um, my mother's French, um, so I have family there. So you know, I have a fair amount of exposure to the world of uh, of wine and 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 you know, having toured some vineyards in France and you know all this sort of stuff and yeah. you know all of all of the usual rubbish that comes with being part French um, <laughs> and and being involved with food. So and and so you know, firsthand, I've seen this this old boys club and it is yeah. there it does exist and i think there is a there is a, a fair amount of gatekeeping there and it yeah i get a sense that it's because it's a little bit more prestigious than some other asset classes right yeah. um, and there's a there's a protection that's wanted around that it's like let's we want to keep the riffraff out right we want to yeah. we want to make sure that the money in here is is good money it's it's uh you know we, you know what i mean like that's the yeah. kind of sense that i get with with that kind with with this particular thing is that would that be a fair assessment or am i maybe maybe generalizing a bit too no much? i think you're i think you're very <laughs> right no i think you're, i think you're right i mean um there's a lot of protectionism around prices as you can mm. imagine um so if you are building a private collection then the cost of entry is going to be high um and there aren't really any wine derivatives like there's wine funds but none of them have been particularly successful mm. um so yeah, the, you know, it is a it is an old boys club for sure. Uh, I also think that investing in wine is frowned upon by many of the producers because it's obviously in their interest that their wines are consumed. So right. I think that this is a unstoppable trend, and ultimately the wines do get consumed. It's they improve with age, so then you know they're they're going to be sellered anyway. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think there is a lot of gatekeeping, and I, and you know when I was thinking about how to approach things like the brand and everything. I wanted that to be very authentically me and our generation to a degree. 
because you mm. look at the really prominent, really established wine merchants, and all of them have kind of, you know, Georgian script. Right, uh, of course. You know, it's, yeah, it's yeah. Everything you'd associate with a luxury asset, you know, is, yeah. is archetypally wine. You know, it, it is this yeah. kind of prestigious, blue chip, um, you know, wasp, silver spoon type world. And there's not really anything wrong with that. You know, you can complain as much as you want about accessibility, but, you know, these are the 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 merchants and the wholesalers and the chateaus and the producers that have that history. Mm. But because this is a new approach, I wanted I wanted it to be loud. I want, you know, our, our colors are that, that very garish purple. I wanted it to be quite in your face. It's basically like a statement that we are doing something new here mm. um, within this within this kind of yeah, within this, I don't want to use the phrase "old boys club," but but I guess that no. But I, I get the sense it's it's some it's coming from a place of reverence and respect for the for the the heritage of the industry yeah. for the um and for the for the the knowledge and 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 that's I think that's demonstrated in yeah. the the team that you've assembled and the way that you talk about what sure. you learn from them. So I yeah. don't think there's you know it's it's about doing it in a way that I suppose is respectful of that, but at the same time saying, look, guys, let's not be afraid to embrace the new. I totally, I totally agree. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree. And I, and I think what people see, and it's very, it would be very easy for me if I wanted to bang the drum here, talk about, you know, we're disrupting this really stale industry. And you mm. know, what we are doing is making wine investing more accessible for sure. But mm. I think what you have to understand about the wine business and the wine trade is that people are custodians. You know, they are, you get into wine because you are passionate about wine or because you have a family connection to the wine industry. And the mm. people that work at the big wine merchants universally are genuinely passionate, passionate about wine. And mm. this has been something that I find really stunning because mm. you know my background's in finance. You occasionally find people that are really passionate about finance, but often they're just in it to make money. Um, yeah. and, and with wine, there is this real kind of reverence for the history and for the assets themselves, which I think is it's basically intoxicating. Um, mm. Uh, and also, I and also, I mean, if I had the money to be able to invest in wine, it would make me sound very interesting at dinner. Party. Yeah, well, that's the thing. <laughs> you know, when you look at the look at the families that run the great estates in in France and Italy, yeah, you know, they they are the same ones often that have run it for hundreds of years. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so so we um uh, we we just sold some Tattinger Champagne uh, as part of a a portfolio, and I, I always put together every time we sell a private portfolio. So I did history at university, by the way. So I'm a, a bit of a nerd when it comes. Oh, to really? Okay. Mm. Um, so how very, so, how very apt. <laughs> but I always put together, you know, a little bit of a description, um, both on, you know, why why it's considered investment quality, but also a little bit about the vineyard because I don't want it, you know, whilst the focus is returns, I also want there to be an understanding of, you know, the brand basically because mm. that's such a big part of the returns. Yeah, and you know the. Tattinger is still run by the, the same family that started the vineyard or, in, or took over the vineyard 100 years ago. Um, you know, the wine's cellared in the ruins of an old abbey in Reims for 10 years before it's released to the public. Mm. And, you know, all, all of the things like that, I think, are just fascinating. Absolutely. And it's only, yeah. but it, that's what I mean. Like, you know, these, these are the grandchildren of the original, you know, the, the, the original chap that started this, mm. this kind of iconic brand. And it's only when you see something like that that you do get a sense of of why there is this perception that wine is an old boys club because it is these people are stewards of history in many ways. Mm. I know that sounds incredibly grandiose. No, but no, but you're absolutely no. It, 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 no, I don't think that's anything grandiose about that at all. It's not not even hyperbolic. It's I think it's absolutely true because these are these are um, 
product of, of historical moments throughout history, you know, yeah. and, and and so so no, I don't think it's hyperbolic at all. And you know, the same could be said with um with certain other spirits and even yeah. beer and stuff. You know, I spent some time in Belgium before. I remember sitting with a group of people in a Belgian flat, you know, that we just arrived and, and they were like, Oh, we're really sorry, we forgot. But there's a a, a, a monastery that's mm. opening up their their gates for the for the uh, for the first time in a couple of years and they're selling their 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 beer. And it transpired that I, I don't remember the name of it or anything like that, but they had to make a two-hour trip to go and queue up for a day in front of this monastery. And these monks were making a uh, a limited run of beer that would sell for a ridiculous amount. And people in the local area would would swarm and queue to try and get a couple of bottles or a couple of crates of this stuff. And they would yeah. drink a couple and keep the rest down down in their cellar. Yeah. And this was and this was like you know I'm hanging around with twenty year olds and they're doing this. You know, so yeah. um, there's there's an appreciation of these because because these this this ties into their their heritage and and the history of their sure. country and they have a reverence for that and I don't think there's anything wrong with that these things represent stories you know yeah. um, exactly and, that. And, and and things that 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 matter to to individuals exactly um, that so, and it, yeah. and it's only when you start reading around the topic so really recommend I mentioned um, Berth Clico earlier but there's a mm. an amazing book called The Widow Clico which is about the history of the Champagne House and I had no idea about it prior to reading okay. it and it is incredible so story of a um, you know, a, a female entrepreneur in an age where there weren't any female entrepreneurs. Mm, mm. And it's it's an incredible story of grit and how against all odds, you know, in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars, someone created this iconic superstar brand. Um, and it's, you know, it is history. And and so you get a sense of how important it is to, 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 to people that are involved in the trade to protect that. Um, Greg, I've got a sales call in two minutes. Yes, um, we, we, we're coming to the end. So, um, no look, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll let you go. But just really briefly, I just want to—I yeah. I would normally do a little bit of an ending thing, but we don't have time for that because we're talking. Sorry, about it. I, I, and I've I also got no, 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 no. That's fine. And we've—and and I'll be honest, I've still got a million questions, which is a testament <laughs> to just I think you know really um, how how time well, flies. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. So we'll have to definitely do this again um, in the future. Um, but thank you so much for your time and being generous with your time and your storytelling and telling us about what you've been up to. I really appreciate it. Um, not, not at all. Thank you for asking such interesting questions. Um, and yeah, <laughs> if any of your listeners are interested in finding out more, uh, my personal email is callum at winify.co. So please do tell them okay. to get in touch or drop Wonderful. me a message. Wonderful. And I'll put all your details below as well um, in the description. Great. So look, have a great sales call and uh, a great <laughs> week. And, um, and, and yeah, I wish you all the best. And yeah, I look forward to staying in touch and speaking again soon. Absolutely. I probably shouldn't have called it a sales call. A consultation. Let's a say consultation. That. I mean, it's a, call it it's a sales call. Go and, go and, go and close it. Nice one. Thank you, Greg. Have a good weekend. See you, you later. Bye-bye. Thank you for watching and or listening. Please like, subscribe and join the conversation in the comments below.